0: Hello folks, I'm Lillian Crawford, a freelance film critic and historian focusing on women and post-war British cinema. Welcome to the second season of the Listen to Lillian podcast, part of an ongoing blog I've recently set up on Substack to develop my research on my own terms. Simply go to listen to lillian.substack.com to subscribe for a bumper crop of reviews, essays and feature articles each episode, I invite my guests to select a British film to discuss, from the silent era to recent releases. All I ask is they pick a film they think is particularly interesting in its representation of female characters or its approach to queer subject matter. For this episode, I've invited my friend, poet and critic Madeline Paulman-Jones to join me for a chat. She's chosen two films, Derek Jarman's Caravaggio and Sally Potter's Orlando. Here are trailers for both films. to introduce the hero of the hour, Michelangelo Caravaggio. Frannuccio!
1: I killed you, you're bright. I did it for you. Princess. What more do you want? Much more than you can imagine.
0: And, Michele, I must advise you that these slanders against my personal life must stop. Uh, That, of course, is heresy. Knife is illegal. God,
1: castle! It's really very good.
0: I think it'll sell. By the way, how long did this draft take you?
1: There can be no doubt about his sex, despite the feminine appearance that every young man of the time aspires to. Do not
0: fade, Orlando. Do not grow old.
1: Sasha, I cannot think of a life without you. I see. You're here as a casualty of love.
0: You were and always will be, whether male or female. The pink, the pearl, and the perfection of your sex.
1: You can see for yourself what I was. No difference at all. Here I am again.
0: Hello, Maddie. How are you?
1: Um, I'm okay. How are you? Yeah, yeah. Good,
0: good, good. I'm very excited that you've picked two of my favourite films for us to talk about today. I think if I was invited on a podcast like this, I'd probably have similar choices. Um, and also would not be able to pick just one film. Yeah, yeah. well, I
1: sent you a kind of list of films. <laughs> I was kind of completely overwhelmed <laughs> with choice. But no, I'm really yeah. excited to talk about this pair.
0: Mm, yeah and it's hard I think it would be hard to talk about one without mentioning the other anyway so yeah so do you want to introduce yourself say a bit about who you are and what you do
1: yeah sure so I'm a poet and a writer Um, I'm currently in my final year at Cambridge studying Russian and Spanish but mainly European cinema Um, and I write criticism about film among other things and wrote a lot for the Cambridge University newspaper Varsity under Lillian as my editor so oh we, yeah we,
0: we co-edited as well it was we did just... <laughs> we co-edited
1: we joined, <laughs> we joined forces for like a triumphant last kind of yes. term editing together yeah.
0: yeah no it was it was good fun that I think probably during that time that I I don't know i have probably seen Caravaggio before that point. But certainly Orlando was one of was a film that I watched for the first time during my time at Cambridge and found it quite transformative in my understanding of, of cinema. Caravaggio is yeah. my grand my grandma's favorite film, I should probably say, um, which really? is how I yeah, which is which because I re- I remember when I first got into film, I was just asking everyone in my family, what's your favorite film? What's your favorite film? And everyone would sort of pick fairly mainstream choices. Um Dad's is Quadrophenia <laughs> Mum's is probably like Lord of the Rings. Um <laughs> and then my grandma's like, it's Caravaggio by Derek Jarman.
1: That's um, funny you say that because um I initially got into Derek Jarman because my dad loves Derek Jarman. Um also. So it was also kind of like a kind of not random. Um as much as just kind of like slightly unexpected family introduction to Derek Jarman but yeah no that's great that it's your grandma's favorite film that's a great um, yeah
0: but it was it was one that she'd always sort of she'd talk about Jarman a lot when when I was younger and we went we used to go to well I say used to as in like (laughs) pre-covid since childhood we'd go to like the pilot inn at Dungeness and then go to see Prospect Cottage every so often um so we, we we love it there. So yeah, it was quite strange because I wasn't really able to see the films because they weren't available really anywhere.
1: I watched both of these films, I think while I was at sixth form, definitely before I went to university, um, potentially in my gap year. But I remember at that time, which must have been like 2016, probably, they were kind of pretty much, they were just becoming available. The, the BFI yeah. were re-releasing the yep. Derek Jarman films around that time, so it felt kind of like new and exciting that they were all sort of being rediscovered in a way. Not that anyone had kind of majorly forgotten about them, but you know yeah. they were definitely having a moment. But they were then. they
0: were they were hard to come across, and and certainly if you did manage to get your hands on a copy, it would be like a fairly crummy DVD or VHS mm-hmm, copy. Tiny, yeah. it, or, or whereas now there are these gorgeous BFI box sets which you know mm-hmm. they're fairly fairly expensive but they are wonderful and they've got really lovely books in them and and they're also all available well most of them are available now on BFI player which is an absolute yeah. godsend for things like this to just be able to restore them and then make them fairly accessible because they I think they used to be shown a lot on film four after at so, at sort of one o'clock in the morning i think that was like <laughs> the way yeah. to watch shaman films for many years um yeah and they, they did show the garden again recently as part of their pride month program which is a wonderful film I certainly would mm. recommend so you said you saw them in sick form did you watch them sort of around the same time were you like going through a tilda swinton phase <laughs>
1: I was 100% going through a Tilda Swinton phase, <laughs> um, which, which I feel like was definitely the link between the two. I mean, I had this kind of idea of Derek Jarman and what his kind of like almost workshop, you know, of of actors and filmmakers and, mm. and kind of artists was. Um, but I definitely watched those films, the ones that he made with Tilda Swinton in particular, because of being into Tilda Swinton, because I was... I think it's like a long, you can trace it back kind of to that I was reading Virginia Woolf at the time and then I read Orlando, then I watched Orlando, then yeah, it kind of spiraled a little bit in that direction, which was fantastic. But um, yeah, it was definitely her that kind of was the thread pulling it all together.
0: Yeah, and I definitely think that like as sort of female students, reading Woolf is (laughs) like a sort of um, seminal experience. And I mean, particularly in, in Orlando's, absolutely revolutionary um stance on on gender and sex I, I think but then being able to sort of see that done as a as film adaptation in a very unique form I would say i mean what 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 do you think of of orlando as an adaptation of the novel
1: um I think it's a really great adaptation of the novel I think I mean I like have thought a lot about um adaptations in general because I'm I mean working in foreign languages as well um I'm always thinking about kind of translation and adaptation and like the way it all kind of works like that's a kind of constant um yeah not worry but yeah difficulty I guess that I'm kind of thinking about and I thought about a lot with that adaptation of Orlando because I mean in some ways it's very far it's very far from the novel but I think it really captures that fluidity which is just so kind of revelatory like you were saying I mean I remember watching that and well Tilda Swinton in that and in Caravaggio and just being like wow it just opened up such a huge kind of um yeah just like way of being not even kind of way of making cinema um yeah really wonderful but I think it's a good adaptation I mean how do you feel about it?
0: Yeah I I I agree I mean I I have always been off the stance that if you're going to do film version of a book then it has to do something different to what the book was doing otherwise there's no point to it and i think that's what sort of most conventional period dramas and adaptations do just sort of vaguely stick to the book and don't do anything original with it i think that what potter does in this film is that she uses cinematic and visual language and grammar and the subtlety that that can allow which you can't necessarily get in a novel um, in a really innovative way and the way that what's so central to that and what we'll probably talk about quite a lot is sort of is, is Tilda Swinton's appearance and her performance and the way that she conveys that in a very fluid manner the the dis- subtle distinctions between maleness and femaleness and and how that a gender as a performance, in a sort of you know, mm. this is this is this is what 1992. So it's two years after Judith Butler's Gender Troubles being published, mm. and, and these ideas are very much sort of in the in the zeitgeist of the early 90s. And I and I think that perhaps that's why an adaptation of Orlando feels so relevant at this point.
1: I, I watched an interview with um, it was it was like a kind of panel with Judith Butler and Maggie Nelson recently. Mm. Um, Where she was telling this anecdote about um, being at a hotel and um, someone in the hotel sort of coming into the room um, she was staying in and sort of being unable to kind of stressing out so much about not working out whether to call Judith Butler Miss or Mr or kind of Sir or like and having this kind of extreme moment of anxiety and that she just kind of watched this happen and was just sort of like this is ridiculous all you're trying to do is clean my room why do we need to get in this is so you know kind Mm -hmm. of proved everything that she had been writing about in gender trouble and all over her work but um I was thinking about it when I watched Orlando because there's that moment when the officials like come to her house after she's she's a woman at this point and is sort of like in danger of losing all of her property and the officials like um I have something to tell you sort of like madam or something kind of like this huge thing it's like so it's so in dialogue with that whole sort of like way of thinking I think like Mm. you were saying for sure
0: yeah and I think and that's certainly something that Tilda Swinton is 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 not someone who would take offense at that or even be particularly bothered about it I mean I don't I don't know what pronouns she she is sort of said that she uses but certainly i think i think that she'd probably (laughs) invite any um and and her performances almost defy that sort of categorization um i mean there, there, there are two sort of key interviews where she's where she's been asked about that um and the latest one this year in vogue where she says that um She'd sort of define her gender as 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 queer, and um and uh, earlier she sort of says, there's an earlier one from 2009 where she says I'm probably a woman. I don't know if I could ever really say that I was a girl. I was kind of a boy for a long time. I don't know. Who knows? It changes. And <laughs> that's just a wonderful approach to yeah. I, I mean, because that's what we see in her roles, in her performances. It's almost sort of she's often described as a as a chameleon in the way that she can just sort of. If you see something like train her in train wreck dreadful film but she is completely different to anything else that she's she's ever done she's sort of this glamorous newspaper editor in that film with a full face of makeup and then you compare it to um these two her performances in these two films where it's it's so stripped back which i think yeah it really was such it was so
1: funny to see the media around that performance in train wreck because everyone was sort mm-hmm. of like Hilda Swinton unrecognisable. And in so many ways it was kind of the closest she's come to playing sort of like a kind of very, um, you know, conventionally or stereotypically kind of glamorous. Yeah. um, Very kind of like hyper feminine coded role. no. It was kind of fantastic. I
0: loved that. Like, yeah, it yeah. was. Ver- it was very much the only reason to watch that film. <laughs> um, every time she was on screen, I got very excited. And then it was like, oh no, she's gone again. We have to watch more Amy, Amy <laughs> oh, no, Schumer antics. <laughs> um, but yeah, I-, I think it's important that we get like these sort of questions of adaptation and. Um, historical accuracy out of the way because it's very important Caravaggio as well um and you know you're you're very interested in adaptation and I I'm very interested in the history of these things and I think that what I love about Jarman's historical films is that the anachronisms are laid bare and it's very if you go into a film like Caravaggio thinking, oh no, it's not going to be historically accurate, then it's not the right film for you. Like yeah. it, th- yes. this is a film that is very clear about what it's trying to do. And I would much rather watch a film in an historical setting that does that than one mm-hmm. where it's like, yeah. this is truth. This is what happened to in the life of Caravaggio. Um, and you get such wonderful images out of that like the critic using a typewriter in a bathtub or yeah, the, po- the pope using a sort of electronic calculator and the- things like that <laughs> which are just so brilliant um and add absolutely nothing but they do to the sort of imagery and, and um and to stress the contemporary relevance of why Jarman is making a film about Caravaggio in 1986 do you have yeah. thoughts on that
1: Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you that I would rather see a film that even if, I mean, obviously not every filmmaker by a long shot is going to be as kind of like playful and, you know, self-aware with that as Jarman was. But um, I think that kind of like, you get so much from that, from engaging with that difficulty rather than just kind of brushing over it. Because I mean, it's, you're never, when you're watching a period film, like in any kind of genre, You're never thinking, ah, this is, you know, the 16th century. I mean, there's always like a degree of kind of like pretending an artifice that you have to sort of like either suspend disbelief about or you can use it. Um, And I think it's fantastic. I love um, Caravaggio for that reason, too. And I love the kind of I guess it's kind of an anachronism, though it's kind of maybe just more of a kind of just element of the aesthetic of the film. But I love that it's shot in that kind of warehouse. I mean, it looks I don't know the exact history of the um, like shooting process and everything. But I mean, it was I in it was, well,
0: the Docklands of East London. They found they found a warehouse that, you know, this is very much not yeah. Italy. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah.
0: It <laughs> And yet fantastic. it feels like it's Italy.
1: Great, yeah. And it's such a great blank canvas yeah. for it in the end. Um, I love that about it as well. But um, yeah,
0: I mean, that's that's certainly true of the way that Jarman makes all of his um, yeah. sort of historical biopics. And they actually sort of get stripped down more and more. If you think of what the castle looks like in Edward II, or
1: yeah.
0: e- to, to, perhaps even to a greater extent, what Trinity College Cambridge is like in Wittgenstein. It's, in just, Wittgenstein, a, it's, it's yeah. just a black room. And then, yeah. so, and then these incredibly colourful costumes. Um which are used to sort of tell the story in the props it's all in it's it's very theatrical and very Shakespearean in its approach and that's the same with sort of the plays on gender um and the constant references to Shakespeare in Orlando as well um of 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 gendered performance
1: yeah it's yeah. funny because I think you're right you're definitely it's totally theatrical but what feels like kind of quite distinctive about Jarman's movies I'm always thinking about it when I'm watching them is just that on the one hand they are so theatrical but on the other they don't really feel theatrical they feel so cinematic or almost maybe more like kind of they feel like art objects they don't feel theatrical which I think is a good thing I mean from my perspective I think they don't get kind of they're not kitschy like that they're not kind of in that way that like a kind of film play can feel
0: and that that's that comes from being shot on 35 millimeter which and and the way that the colors are picked up on film is just astonishing um right. and it also comes from the incredible costume designs i mean the fact that caravaggio oh, yeah. is sandy powell's first film is insane i mean the costumes are
1: just sandy powell's first cool. film and tilda swinton's first film yes That's- and sean beans is-
0: <laughs> let's not forget but yeah no it's it's like this is their first work and it's just i mean it's sublime Perfect. um yeah. and it's so painterly i mean if if if, so, if people want to sort of criticize the historic the historical basis of the film then you know the chiaroscuro in the film and the way that the lighting is used to sort of mirror the tenebrism of of caravaggio's paintings is spot on yeah yeah for sure.
1: like it's faithful to the to caravaggio as an artist before it is to his kind of like definitely you know historical period and, which
0: and, is we, and we don't rotten. know that much about him which i think is also the appeal yeah. of it and it's it's the appeal of you know in 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 jarman's in jarman's first film sebastian it's the same sort of approach to to history that well we don't know so why why not do yeah, it so this why say. not do it this way i mean there isn't the, the lena who's the the character played by um is, is is mentioned in the court record in in 1605 as ha- as having been his girl but that that's mm-hmm. the only real reference to her and if she was used in a model it was that his painting Madonna di Loreto which is a very virginal painting it's not at all eroticized in fact there are very few women in Caravaggio's paintings and where they are they're always clothed um the majority of of Caravaggio's work is very heavily eroticized male nudes, sort of beckoning yeah. the viewer through fruit or wine or the Cupids, that things like um, yeah, Amor Vincit yeah. Exactly, it's where, where it's 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 sort of beckoning in to to lust the male body, um, which is you know, for for an artist like Derek Jarman in the eighties, that is that is going to appeal um as a as, a, as yeah. i mean on multiple levels but certainly as, a, <laughs> as an artist to sort of emulate that and also there's an appeal of the mystery surrounding that sexuality and around those identities i think which he communicates very effectively in the film yeah. particularly within the persona and character of lena um which is yeah. just embodied by tilda swinton i mean no one else could play this part i don't think
1: <laughs> yeah i mean there's essentially um nothing really like to go on mm. even in i mean like you're saying historically there's nothing to go on but even in what there is of the kind of script for the film it's it's quite like a kind of bare bare bones kind of situation and she fleshes it out so believably and so kind of like it's also kind of slippery but in such a wonderful way like you kind of just don't know at any point really you know, what's going to happen, who she's in love with, what's happening in the kind of like love triangle. The whole thing is just so kind of like well captured. And yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it's such a typically Tilda Swinton performance in like the best way.
0: What I think this film does is, I mean, it sort of sets up Swinton as one of Caravaggio's muses, but it's also the establishment of her as Jarman's muse. And she plays that same role of sort of being trapped between two male lovers in a sort of menage a trois situation in those other films that we mentioned as well edward ii where she's playing isabella france and um, yeah. the queen to edward ii caught between him Piers gaveston and then in wittgenstein it's 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 similar i mean it's she, she's yeah. she's lady yeah. ottiline morale in that film and it's sort yeah. of she's with Bertrand Russell but it's all very complicated yeah, and, yeah. and and, and then, yeah. Michael Goff then is sort of permanently in the role of like the sort of older man who's like sort of lusting after the young male protagonist but we're not really sure what's going on there. It's like yeah, um...
1: <laughs> and, yeah and I guess even in like The Last of England she's not I mean yeah. it's that whole kind of like relationship of her characters to marriage and like kind of mm-hmm. um i guess heteronormativity in a way as well just like that scene that incredible scene where she rips the well she cuts the wedding dress yeah. um, up and kind of eats it you know by the pond with the swans and the fire i mean yeah, yeah. it's yeah throughout the movie so that's such a big part of mm-hmm. who she kind of, the, the role she plays in the jarman universe i guess
0: yeah and there's this this what's so Fascinating, I think, if if Caravaggio, particularly in relation to Orlando, is mm. that her presentation for the first half of the film is is more masculine than than the second half. So she's sort of dirty. She's wearing uh, very androgynous clothing, a headscarf to cover her hair, and you'd almost mistake her for a young boy in that part of the film. Then. After it's revealed that she's had sex with both Caravaggio and Ranuccio, um, Sean Bean's character, it's then at that it's then at the point when she realizes that she's pregnant that she sort of lets her hair down and there's that gorgeous scene where she's looking in the hand mirror and there's sort of jazz music playing and she turns yeah. to the camera in a sort of fourth wall break in exactly the same way that the central scene of Orlando does it. Um, yeah. And, and funnily enough, <laughs> yeah. I, I was That's doing a exactly. film I was doing a film quiz at one point and I just could not tell <laughs> if it was the transformation scene in Edward <laughs> II or if it was in Caravaggio or if it was the one in Orlando because they're so yeah. similar and they take place sort of bang in the middle about the 45 yeah. minute mark. and then the rest of the film is her sort of telling them that she's she's pregnant and then um, Reniccio whether or not he actually did kill Lena is is sort of a mystery but he claims to have killed her so that he could be with with Caravaggio.
1: No, I was just going to say about that scene, yeah. I used to, like, when I re-watched Caravaggio before we had this conversation, I hadn't seen it probably since like 2016 or whatever, all the way through. But I'd gone back and watched that scene so many times because I constantly was thinking about it. I think it's so, so striking. And then you're right, it totally is mirrored all the way through Orlando. And I mean, with the kind of like breaking the fourth wall, but particularly in that whole kind of like mirror to the, to the audience kind of right. like set of gazes. Um, yeah. And it's so so distinctive. I can't think of really another example of that kind of like I, something that's carried through like that, but also just a, a moment really like that in a debut film for for a performer
0: so yeah yeah. well it's it's interesting because I think that the sort of the mirror scene as like a sort of the idea of of Jacques Lacan's mirror stage of like when one becomes aware of one's uh, external self and one's identity I mean Caravaggio goes through this quite early on in the film when he sort of looks at himself and almost lusts after his own body in a sort of narcissist type relationship and we, he is shown to be a narcissist throughout the film but it's sort of he's playing with that idea of, of mirror images and i think it's become something of a trope in representations of transness i mean if we think later on something like boys don't cry which is a horrendous film um in what 1996 um Brandon is sort of constantly looking in the mirror and criticizing himself and again in like Lucas Don's Girl where Lara is sort of constantly looking in the mirror and looking at her genitals and it's all very uncomfortable. Mm. This is so neatly done and it's so important because it's the first time that we see that. I mean, particularly in Orlando when, mm. you know, it's her standing completely naked um and we see her sexed body for the first time which is you know the the first line is um he for there could be no doubt about his sex though the fashion of the time did something to disguise it and then suddenly it's like oh my god (laughs) yeah that amazing
1: line she's looked at herself in the mirror and she says like um same person no difference at all just a different sex yes exactly. Um, yeah which is so what
0: i mean and I was going to, if you, if, you, if you don't mind, I thought I'd just read the passage from Wolf, which I think is, you know.
1: Yeah, please.
0: I, I so love it. It's quite long, but you can stop me if, I, if I'm reading too much. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I do think that it really, as, as great as the film does a job of portraying it, the way that Wolf writes it is even, is a higher tier of, of, of description. Um, the trumpeters ranging themselves side by side in order blow one terrific blast, the truth at which Orlando woke. He stretched himself, he rose, he stood upright in complete nakedness before us. And while the trumpets pealed truth, 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 we have no choice left but to confess he was a woman. The sound of the trumpets died away and Orlando stood stark naked. No human being since the world began has ever looked more ravishing. His form combined in one the strength of a man and a woman's grace. As he stood there, the silver trumpets prolonged their note, as if reluctant to leave the lovely sight which their blast had called forth, and chastity, purity and modesty, inspired no doubt by curiosity, peeped in at the door and threw a garment like a towel at the naked form which, unfortunately, fell short by several inches. Orlando looked himself up and down in a long looking glass, without showing any signs of discomposure, and went, presumably, to his bath. We may take advantage of this pause in the narrative to make certain statements. Orlando had become a woman, there is no denying it. But in every other respect, Orlando remained precisely as he had been. The change of sex, though it altered their future, did nothing whatever to alter their identity. Their faces remained, as their portraits prove, practically the same. His memory, but in future we must, for convention's sake, say her for his and she for he. Her memory then went back through all the events of her past life without encountering any obstacle. Some slight haziness there may have been, as if a few dark drops had fallen into the clear pool of memory. Certain things had become a little dimmed, but that was all. The change seemed to have been accomplished painlessly and completely, and in such a way that Orlando herself showed no surprise at it. Many people taking in- this into account, and holding that such a change of sex is against nature, have been at great pains to prove, one, that Orlando had always been a woman, two, that Orlando is at this moment a man. Let biologists and psychologists determine. It is enough for us to state the simple fact, Orlando was a man till the age of 30, when he became a woman and has remained so ever since. But let other pens treat of sex and sexuality. We quit such odious subjects as soon as we can. And then it's just left, like for the rest (laughs) of the book. It just... So that's wonderful. the last word you
1: that. yeah
0: yeah so- sorry it's quite long
1: <laughs> no no I love I mean it's, it's, it's just
0: one of passage. my favorite passages in all of literature because it just it just encapsulates and to to have written that in the 1920s is just astonishing um I don't think anyone has perhaps written something so I mean, it's, but it shouldn't be radical.
1: It's know? so radical as well. It's so, in like such a beautiful way as mm. well. The kind of like, for convention's sake, we'll now be using, you know, she did this, you know, whatever. Yeah.
0: I mean, the idea it's, of cha- of being able to To change the use of pronouns is something yeah, that I mean, people today still can't get their heads around that. Um,
1: I know. And it's just, yeah, it's so beautifully written above, you know, I mean, in addition to all of that, it's all just—I mean—that's kind of why it's so. That's it's all knitted up together, and just like Wolf being wonderful. I mean, like Orlando as a whole is so great, and this whole idea that it's like a long love letter to Vita Sackville-West. Exactly. Yeah. the
0: Yeah. Yeah, and it's—I mean, personally, as I when I was throughout my life, I've been—I've gone to Sissinghurst because it, it's very close to where I live. Where. um where Vita Sackville-West lived, and I've been many times with my with my grandparents to to Monk House, where um Virginia and Leonard Woolf lived, and it's just it's so lovely to go to those places and then to come back to these films to watch them and uh, and to those and to that literature and sort of develop an idea of who they were and and what radical <laughs> understandings of sexuality, relationships and gender they all had, um, yeah. which hasn't really I mean maybe in, in some ways in terms sort of like you can mirror the Bloomsbury group with what emerges at the end of the 80s, early 90s in British film mm. in terms of the sort of troupe that comes together to make these films and the style of filmmaking, which which still continues today. I mean, Joanna Hogg is, is, makes um, her first film the same year as Caravaggio in 86, Caprice, which I... Mm was very lucky to be able to see um, i actually
1: saw it as well
0: yeah oh uh, did you uh,
1: yeah i actually did yeah i saw it when um they did a joanna hogg season at the arts picture house in cambridge oh wow
0: yeah it's, it's so hard to see i i saw it uh, um the the tilda swinton season at the bfi like literally as lockdown happened uh, mm. bizarrely tilda swinton and joanna hogg of the lot of uh, Two of the last people I saw before going into <laughs> lockdown because um I, I went we went to see um went to see caprice and um John Maybury's man to man oh my it. gosh
1: that's so hard to see how was that
0: awful absolutely dreadful. Really? um <laughs> I'll come back to that in a minute um okay because it was it was so strange because they were both there and they, they both said like we we shouldn't be here there was like six people in <laughs> one of the BFI screening rooms we were all just sat there watching very young Tilda in, in caprice which is just an astonishing film and hopefully yeah. with because it's it's going to be incorporated in some way into the souvenir part two and and oh, in, really? yeah yeah Great. um okay. I, because the film that Julie makes in the souvenir part two is effectively caprice Capri- because it, it's it's the it's that yeah. part the part two is going to be that part of Joanna Hogg's oh, life. life.
1: Um yeah. oh, wow
0: and the way she conceptualises those films is is very similar to the way that Jarman conceptualized his films. You know, there's no formal script, it's just an it's just a scrapbook with with notes and images mm-hmm. and bits of material on things. And then this is the film, let's make it. Um, and there's that beautiful improvisational nature to to that style of filmmaking, which I absolutely love. Yeah. Yeah, it's
1: so kind of like, and then it feels in a way like an extension of that kind of Bloomsbury group modernist prose writing and, and yeah. that kind of way of being as well. Yeah, for sure.
0: Sorry, the reason why I was was mentioning that is because Man to Man is the was a play (laughs) by Mm Manfred Karger, and Sally Potter saw Tilda Swinton in that play, in which she plays men and women in from Mm -hmm. scene to scene, and just has to switch. I mean, the the film does it in a very grotesque way, and it 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 is very bad. I mean, when the film finished, Tilda said quite loudly, "That was fucking awful," Um, which was (laughs) which was because she hadn't seen it since she made it, and everyone was. Just like, yep, really, really <laughs> bad.
1: <laughs> I remember it, it exists in my mind as just like this kind of nebulous movie, and right. like the images I saw because I re- had read about it in relation to Orlando. Just in, t- <laughs> yeah, Sally Potter having seen it, and now knowing it's like that. Oh, oh no, no, it's okay, it's, yeah. it's, it's
0: truly horrendous. Um, <laughs> I mean, she 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 is really great in it, but the the film just, I mean, it it it's a complete mess of a film. Um okay. in, in terms of you know that that's something that's very clearly scripted. It's done as this bizarre monologue, whereas obviously these films aren't so neatly scripted. Well maybe yeah. Orlando is to some extent because but but there's still there's still a sense that they're, you know, play, they're
1: isn't it? Yeah exactly. Which kind of has a similar effect.
0: Yeah. So I I think it's I think it's it, it's it's so strange just like how this period of cinema is we're still sort of in it it's it's devastating that you know so many of the people who were foundational to it Jarman especially died so very young I mean obviously that's that's a tragedy in and of itself but but certainly in terms of where that where film history might have gone had Jarman been around for goodness knows how many how much longer and made um, yeah. hundreds of other films. And also
1: that whole culture, that whole culture's kind of gone. That kind of funding mm. culture with the BFI and film four doesn't really exist anymore in the same way, which I guess makes it so much harder to make a film. I mean, they had small budgets anyway, those German films, but I mean, now that's not, you know, that whole kind of system doesn't exist anymore.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. But like, it's amazing how yeah the the budgets for certainly for caravaggio is so small and yet mm. they they managed to create that world and evoke that world and that period yeah, through Co- yeah contrasted with the sort of epic films which have millions and millions put behind them and they just don't come that close to capturing the essence of what they're trying to communicate i mean you're never in any doubt for a moment despite all the anachronisms and the fact that it's a warehouse in East London, you never once doubt that they're not where they say they are. It's yeah. I think it's really, really powerful. And, and, and the way that fashions change as well. And, in particular with um, Tilda's characters in both of these films, is before she has that wonderful scene with the mirror, she's wearing sort of, I don't know, the sort of thing that perhaps the sort of bohemian person might wear. (laughs) You know, it's very modern dress. It's like a cardigan and a long dress. It's basically what what I wear from day to day.
1: Um, It's like (laughs) long skirts. Yeah, Yeah. and then
0: they bring out that incredible dress and the earrings Mm. and everything. She lets her hair down. It's just a complete Transformation in the same yeah. way that Orlando does that. They go yeah, from... when
1: they put her into the corsets after she's yeah. when she goes back to the house after coming back from. I think actually they filmed that all in Uzbekistan because the crazy yeah, thing did. about Orlando that I'd forgotten is that it's like a Len film. Co-production, mm-hmm. like a kind of fresh after the fall of the Soviet Union, nineteen ninety-two yeah. co-production with um, with Russia, and then they they filmed some of it in Uzbekistan. But yeah. um that's the Constantinople
0: sequence of- is all done in yeah. New- in Uzbekistan. All done in um, yeah, which is but, very um, fascinating. Yeah, when she
1: back, yeah, it's so fascinating that whole kind of and yeah, the Russian link. I think the cinematographer was Russian as well, though I might be. I'm, I'm not one hundred percent sure, but. Um, yeah, like that scene when she yeah, comes Alexei back.
0: Alexei Yorodionov, and... So I would say yeah. that he's
1: probably pretty... Russian. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. No. He. Yeah. He's. Yeah. Russian. <laughs> um, <laughs> Apologies but, for my yeah.
0: atrocious pronunciation.
1: <laughs> no, you did. You did okay. You did. You did well with that. Um, but yeah. No. I mean that. Um, I hadn't thought about it in this kind of like definite terms before you mentioned it today, that kind of the similarities between that pivotal moment in Caravaggio and then in Orlando. But I mean, that kind of um, being laced into that beautiful dress in Caravaggio is so similar to that moment where Orlando yeah. comes back and has that, and he's kind of made a, a lady of the kind of house, you know, and having that kind of, um, with the maids, like doing up her mm. this white corset and, um, and that dress.
0: Yeah, and then we get the incredible labyrinth scene. Where where, yeah. where we um, sort of move into the next period when Billy Zane shows up, which oh, is, yeah. is, is is perhaps my le- my least favorite part of the film because I find Billy Zane um, quite unwatchably. Like What's the word I want? Like smug. Like non
1: Completely. That whole. Thing. Yeah. I mean, I know it actually does happen in the novel, and it. it mm. It makes sense on some level, but it does feel like kind of like you're just sort of swept off on some sort of separate tangent yeah. and kind of like, but it's, yeah. I but mean... the
0: transformation in, in in the way that she's dressed and the periods in that scene where she's running, as she's sort of mm. escaping the slimy man who wants to marry her and she she just sort of gets out of there. I don't know if you, you knew this, Um, I was just because when I was doing some reading beforehand, that that scene was supposed to be the theme of the Met Gala last year?
1: I did I was reading yeah. this too when I was um when I was doing some reading as well that would have been and after Notes on Camp as well. Yeah that, exactly.
0: Notes, Notes on would Camp have been... was, yeah like 2019 I think.
1: 2019 so it would have been two years in a row of um of amazing queer themes for the Met yeah. Gala. Um, yeah
0: um yeah because well. they, they were calling it About Time so it would have been fascinating to see like where those designers took that theme and sort of developed yeah. on it and I mean some of the I hope, hopefully are, they'll use that I mean it's such a great idea for a theme hopefully they'll do it again I don't oh, know if yeah. they've announced what the next one will be I guess they probably haven't announced when the next one will be because they, be. they do not <laughs> know
1: but yeah what an incredible idea yeah I mean I remember thinking that a lot of the designers the, some of the outfits for the notes on camp themed Met Gala were just so off. <laughs> it would be interesting to see um, yeah. how they kind of embrace. But, that.
0: Yeah, I, c- I, c- I can imagine some very respectful looking involved in sort of very androgynous looks from certain very glamorous women. Like...
1: <laughs> or just like period costumes. Yeah, like yeah. M- yeah.
0: my my bisexuality would very much <laughs> appreciate this as a theme, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um... Yeah, no, that would that would be wonderful. But yeah, it's it's amazing that because I don't I don't know if I think of Orlando as being a film that has sort of permeated into modern culture enough for it to be, you know, the theme of the Met Gala. I don't. Mm. I think maybe Car- yeah. maybe to some extent, Caravaggio is because I think that Jarman's films, even though they haven't perhaps been as successful as some other films. They're still sort of, you know, they always get mentioned in best of lists and the canon of British cinema. Whereas Orlando doesn't. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I have a a wrong perception. I'm not
1: sure. I think no, I think you're right. I think it's two different kinds of like canonization, Mm. those two movies. I think you're so right. Like the Derek Jarman films and Caravaggio in particular. I think primarily as well, because it's one of the more accessible of the Derek Jarman films. Yes. It's so often, you know, cited as being this kind of like um, pinnacle of British art film in a very kind of specific, um, I don't know, generic category. Whereas Orlando maybe has had less kind of like, um, this is just my impression, but kind of less sort of um, film studiesy type kind of praise. Right. Um, in that way but it's kind of been canonized kind of like as a cult movie maybe a bit Mm. more than Caravaggio has just in the mainstream like more people know about Orlando I think I also I also think it's it's something
0: to do with the fact that Sally Potter's had a very different career since she made Orlando Mm. um and every time I every time I watch a new Sally Potter film and I hate it because yeah. I, I don't know what she does because she's she's made a series of of really like quite awful film. Um as yeah. is um The Party, which is just atrocious. It's it's one of the worst films I've seen ever. Um and Roads Not Taken, which was like her film that came out last year, just went by without anyone actually really seeing it. And every review said it wasn't worth entertaining. So I think I think it's like every time I see one of those films now, it's like, wait, did I did I did I mistake something? Is that is there a lack of craft in Orlando? It's like, no, no, she wasn't. She was genuinely very good. I don't know why she's sort of gone away from that. She's gone. She's turned away from that sort of lavish very nuanced film style of filmmaking to something very populist and something very appealing to a certain picture house audience on a, a friday evening like red glass of red wine in hand let's let's have a chortle about new labor or <laughs> yeah. those sorts of things you know it's, it's a very smug sort of cinema that she's made since mm. i think yeah.
1: no i wonder that a lot with the um production history of orlando i i remember reading a lot about how difficult it was for her to make that film and how tilda swinton was really involved in the script writing process and also in the production process um which i know is a kind of mode of working that she's really embraced with a lot of other filmmakers as well i mean i'm thinking like Luca Guadagnino in in particular, and uh, really helping kind of get projects from the kind of inception to completion time, sort of like all the being there all the way through. But um, I remember reading that they were kind of just, I think that they did a photo shoot of Tilda Swinton in the costumes and then took a kind of photo book to film festivals, trying to find, and just showing it to them and sort of trying to find funding. Um, And I wonder whether that production history and the kind of collaborative Mm. Aspect, you know, that kind of impacted the way that film turned out. Yeah. Just, but you know, in relation to what you were saying about the more recent movies,
0: yeah, because I think like Ginger and Rosa is a BBC Films um, production, and the party is is Picture House Entertainment. So that I think it was like the first film that Picture House like made. So it was like that. Those are films very clearly aiming for a light audience, whereas Orlando, as you say, is sort of this. It, it, it dares to be. A bit more complex and to mm-hmm. um to force the audience to work a bit harder than perhaps her later films have done. Which I think yeah. is a shame because as unique as Orlando is, it would have been great if we had more films like that. Um, but it yeah, it's not something that really seems to have been continued. I think I think that Joanna Hogg's films are perhaps unique in that regard of sort of continuing that very independent improvised improvisational um style to them the souvenir being sort of the peak of that I think I mean I absolutely love that film and I wonder if the reason why I loved it so much was because it felt like it was in a tradition of cinema which I hadn't seen for for a long time and it's it's so wonderful sort of looking through her earlier films where the budget's smaller and you know Martin Scorsese is an executive producing, so you yeah. know there's a bit more money in the souvenir than perhaps there is in in unrelated or archipelago, both of which I really love. Not so keen on it on exhibition, to say. I mean, the fact that the star of the souvenir is Tilda Swinton's daughter just sort of mm. it, it, it gives it gives one hope for the fact that there might be you know a second generation of this style of, of filmmaker. I think, mm. and Joanna Hogg will always mention that she comes from that tradition. She'll always make reference to Jarman as influence because yeah. she's indebted to him. She yeah. started out at the time when his films were like, you know, the big thing in in British film. I yeah. think it's, I mean, obviously it's mostly for a sort of cult audience, but they were huge when they would yeah. come out.
1: They were so huge. And also I think, I was thinking about this while I was watching Caravaggio again, um, that there's this kind of pigeonholing of, Jarman's films as kind of you know um yeah cult films or being kind of yeah I mean this kind of like stereotypically kind of either camp or kind of just like queer aesthetic that he kind of seemed to embody which of course he does and he does wonderfully and kind of beautifully but also they're kind of in dialogue with a whole tradition of um kind of European art cinema like they're really he was really inspired by you know obviously Pasolini and Parajanov um a whole range of amazing filmmakers, some of whose aesthetics are kind of queer in the same way that Jarman's is, but also just kind of, you know, everything. They're so kind of um eclectic. And I think yeah. sometimes, yeah, people not that you want to deny any of the kind of um amazing kind of specificity of that aesthetic. Also, he's just mm. so versatile, I think, in a way he doesn't get that much credit for, maybe. Sometimes.
0: Yeah. And he may he takes that that tradition and that style and makes it perhaps. A bit more accessible I mean it, certainly I think Parajanov is, is an excellent point of comparison because it's it's a similar aesthetic and style but Jarman's I know, films he loved,
1: uh, he loved are Shadow. so much
0: more structured around like a narrative sorry what, what film were you going to say
1: oh no I just say I knew that he I remember reading that Jarman loved Shadow Forgotten Ancestors right and, yeah which actually interestingly isn't one of the much more narratively driven prior mm. films yeah. but yeah you're right for sure
0: yeah um and some 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 of the the i'm, I'm thinking in particular of sort of some of the shots of, of, na- of nude bodies or of, um, s- the very painterly compositions where you know it's just let's just let the camera look at this for a little while mm-hmm. nothing's gonna move it's just a painting um
1: yeah which
0: is you know I mean that's pretty much every shot in color of pomegranates for example I think um where it's just like oh yeah. that looks good tough, oh <laughs> The the trouble I think the trouble I perhaps have with Parajanov is that is that you sort of get to the end of it and think oh that was beautiful what does it mean (laughs) whereas with a German film it's like you know what the story's been about and you know what it's been trying to do maybe that's just me as a sort of (laughs) less
1: culture yeah no I mean I think it's like less they're so culturally specific, <laughs> the Parajana films. Um, I think that's like a totally natural and uh, common experience. I mean, I feel this the same, it's, I have studied them um, also in like a more kind of like national context and stuff. And then I'm like, oh, okay. Like the pomegranate sp- juice spilling on the thing looks like various different formations of Armenia. Like, okay, right. um, which, is, um, which is another way of kind of watching them. But yeah, no, I think, um, you're right with the Derek Jarman ones though I do think that the the more experimental ones are very leave a lot of room for interpretation I mean they're pretty ambiguous and amorphous in a great way but absolutely
0: yeah. yeah yeah I agree and also I think that in terms of influence on on Caravaggio in particular it's it's coming out of Maybe even earlier than sort of Pasolini, as you said, as sort of neorealism of the immediate post-war period in Italy. Certainly, the aesthetic of the film is—it's not really Renaissance; it's it's more sort of um, late forties, early fifties um, mm-hmm. version of what that looked like. I mean, the sort of opulence of a Visconti film translated into that period, um, well, like the Red
1: Shoes or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm just gonna smile about that. For- yeah. <laughs> I love it when people mention the greats. <laughs> um,
1: that was one of actually, I was thinking that was one of the things I um, films I considered suggesting for this podcast was "I Know Where I'm Going," but it went in a di- went a different way. You know,
0: you know, yeah, it's Tilda Swinton's favorite film. Yeah, and, could and if we and- could
1: have tagged that on. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
0: I mean, I mean, I know where I'm going is so fascinating for so many reasons.
1: I love that film. It's
0: just a gorgeous film.
1: That was like my parents' favourite film and I watched it a lot when I was young and then Mm. came back to it again, you know, within the last few years and I just, every time I watch it, could watch it endlessly.
0: Yeah, I wonder why it's her favourite. I I always find that surprising when I I see that she just absolutely adores it because it's so different to the films that she's made.
1: I mean, there's the Scottish link.
0: That's true.
1: That was so much fun. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: If you've got an idea for an article or a podcast, you can contact me via Twitter. My handle is at LilCraw with 3 hours in Lil, which is where I'll be posting about new writing and episodes. Do also get in touch if you fancy appearing as a guest and have a film you'd love to discuss with me. The Listen to Lillian podcast is available via the blog and all the usual channels, including Spotify, Google and Apple Podcasts, so don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. All that remains for me to say is thank you for listening and toodlepip.